Oh, good morning to my friends, in, or to, g'day to my friends in Mafra. I'm not sure what time you'll be watching this. Um, coming to you live from uh, Ellen Bank. Uh, but it's good to be back with you today, uh, continuing the series I began a while ago on Isaiah. And happy Mother's Day to all of those for whom uh, Mother's Day matters. Um, I hope you're having a good day. Uh, but uh, let's pray together and then we'll read uh, God's word. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, uh, again, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, giving it to us in a language we can understand. And we pray now as we come to the prophet Isaiah and, and some difficult bits and some, um, some very challenging parts, we pray that you would make our hearts tender towards those things that you would teach us from your word today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read together Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 5. So that's Isaiah 2 verse 5. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The prophet writes, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendour of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendour of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendour of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Well, this is uh, the third sermon in this series that I'm doing on Isaiah, uh, just looking at the first five chapters at this point. But um, chapter one, starting at verse two, after Isaiah's introduced the book a little uh, and told where he fits into the, um, the historical period, uh, chapter one, verse two, through to the end of chapter two, verse five, is a, a summary of all of the things that we'll find throughout the rest of the book. It's taken to be 
uh, something that was uh, written by the prophet after he'd finished the rest of the book. It introduces the book's big themes. And it uh, shows us in chapter 1, verses 1 to 31, the decadent situation in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, uh, what remained of the, um, of the kingdom at that time. Uh, Jerusalem was a decadent city. We've seen that decadent socially, decadent uh, morally, decadent in, in, in its religion. Um, but then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we see a picture of a glorious distant future. Uh, things aren't always going to be decadent. Things will not always be bad. God will deal with all sources of rebellion and there is a better day coming for those that are faithful to him. Now, in the first 12 chapters, Isaiah is a very carefully structured, st structured book and in the first 12 chapters of the prophecy, we see uh, what amounts to a pendulum swinging uh, that uh, oscillates between uh, judgment and promise. And so uh, the threat of judgment uh, hangs uh, very heavily in the book. But as well as that, God has words of comfort for those who will repent, for those who will return to him, uh, words of promise that's found in God's salvation. God is a saving God, Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh was the great covenant name of uh, Israel's God, the, uh, the name by which he introduced himself to, to Moses. And uh, when we see Lord written in, in capitals in, in the Bible, we need to understand that that's the translation of the, of the wonderful name of God, Yahweh. Uh, and Yahweh is salvation. So there's this oscillation, this swinging backwards and forwards between the threat of judgment and the promise of salvation. Now, these first five chapters of Isaiah that we're looking at break up into those two ideas. Um, so chapter one is mainly about judgment. Chapter two is uh, mainly a promise of salvation. Well, it's entirely a promise of salvation, long, long in the distance, but, but nonetheless the promise that, uh, that God will draw people to himself uh, around a, a recreated Zion. But then chapter 2, verse 6, uh, where we're having a look today, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1, again returns to the theme of judgment, mainly judgment, little glimmers of hope, but mainly judgment. Uh, and then just another short section in uh, chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, uh, promises salvation. And then this, uh, this section, one, chapters 1 to 5, finishes with another lengthy look at judgment. So I've tried to make a little graph there uh, to represent uh, graphically uh, how these things play out. And you'll see that the, the, over, the overwhelming concentration of these first five chapters is on judgment which means that that's the message that God's people in Jer Jerusalem and Judah need to hear. They're getting lax in their faith, uh, have become very lax, become decadent. Uh, they're people who are urgently in need of attending to their ways and returning to what God, how God told them to live. So you can see that there's a very strong concentration on judgment with glimmers of hope, glimmers of promise of salvation for those who will repent and turn to God. Well, this, uh, this idea of threat and promise, this judgment and salvation, uh, plays out like this. The question that the uh, book of Isaiah answers across all of its 66 chapters is how will the Zion of chapter 1, the rebellious children uh, who have uh, who've, who've drawn away from their father God, the one that saved them, the one that provided for them, how will that Zion become that Zion? Uh, how, will, will it, how will it be transformed to be the happy family that we find in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and, and which we find described one, quite wonderfully in chapters 65 and 66? So how will this Zion, the rebellious uh, Zion of chapter 1, become that Zion, the, uh, the happy family of, uh, of the end of the book? 
And that's the question that the rest of the book of Isaiah answers. And so if chapter 1 verses uh, up to the end of chapter 2 verse 5 introduce the book's big themes, they, they do it in such a way that you could say it's like an overview. Um, it's like looking at a, a map of Victoria and finding where Mafra is. But if you wanted to find your way to uh, the town hall in Mafra, a map like that wouldn't do you much good. You'd need to have something that uh, gave you a close-up. And so chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 6 to 4 verse 1 shows us more detail about the, su the subject of this judgment that God is so concerned that his people will heed. And so we go from the general picture of chapter 1 through to chapter 2 verse 5 to the much more detailed account of that judgment that we see and it's quite a lengthy passage of which we're only going to deal with a few verses now. And so we can say that this passage is about the day of the Lord. Yahweh has a day. Yahweh, the great God of Israel, has a day when he will call to account not just his own people, but the people of the nations. And so if we were to sum up what this talk today is about, what these chapters are, we could say uh, the message to us today, the message to them back then was reject futile self-sufficiency, find refuge in Yahweh before it's too late. It really does matter that, uh, that people make up their mind to live God's way. Uh, he's the creator, he's the one that... Uh, made us he made us for himself and uh, if we try to live our own way if we try to find meaning if we uh, try to worship things other than the one true god if we behave in a self-sufficient kind of a way we'll be judged uh, the lord of all the earth will demand an accounting of our life so reject futile self-sufficiency it won't work find refuge in yahweh before it's too late now Isaiah was writing at a time when the threat to Judah's uh, safety and security was very real. Uh, Judah over there in the, the west of the map, um, Jerusalem was its capital city, but to the east was Assyria, the dominant uh, empire at that time. It had a long period of ascendancy in the, uh, the world of the ancient Near East. And uh, they were a credible threat because in 722 BC, and it may be around about this time that Isaiah is writing, we know that his career began in 740 BC, uh, but by 722 BC, Assyria had uh, crushed the northern kingdom of Israel and they'd taken uh, the capital city of Samaria. And so that was only just a little way ahead. This, was, uh, this is after the division of the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom into what was called Israel and Judah. Judah being the southern kingdom. So Samaria has already fallen to Assyria and God's people should have learned a lesson from that because that was a judgment on the idolatry of Israel. But in 701 BC, uh, the Assyrians came all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was seriously threatened by this dominant power. Uh, Israel was just a little country, uh, but, but uh, Assyria was, a, it was a, uh, an all-conquering empire if you look at that green part of the map, that was uh, the territory that they'd conquered in which they were ruling. Uh, the threat of the Assyrians was no small thing and they were cruel masters. So that's the background to our passage. But picking it up at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, uh, Isaiah makes this appeal. He's just spoken of the day when the nations will be drawn to Zion. And with that in mind, he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So we've seen Yahweh's glorious future, which uh, will come to all who repent and turn to him. The nations we see there are being gathered to Zion. Uh, and so now Isaiah the prophet summons God's people. He's speaking on God's behalf. He's pleading with them. He says, oh, 
come. He says, in, in effect, do what the nations will do. One day the nations will be drawn to Zion. They'll be uh, drawn to the worship of the world's one true God. And so he's saying, use the example that I've just given as your template. Do as the nations will one day do. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, we see that uh, there's going to come a day when many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's Zion, to the house of the God of Jacob. So as the nations will be drawn one day, uh, Isaiah is saying, come back to Yahweh now. He says, in effect, walk in the light now as they will walk to the light one day then but from verse 6 on we see that Jerusalem is not walking in the light of Yahweh Jerusalem uh, the people of, of Judah uh, are people full of futility full of emptiness full of purposelessness full of uh, activity that is doomed to failure now, what we find there is a record of four futile things that invite God's rejection. Look at verse 6. You have rejected your people. Now, God doesn't do that lightly. He's not a, a capricious God. He's not a God who just uh, gets sick of things. He's patient. He wants people to turn. But he's no fool and he won't be treated as one. So if his people continue to turn their back on him, then they will get what they deserve. And so Isaiah's appeal... He says, you've rejected your people. He's speaking to God here. He's speaking to Yahweh. Why is that? Because they're full of things from the east. Their land is filled with silver. Their land is filled with horses. Their land is filled with idols. It's full of four things that represent serious rejection of God and on account of that he rejects them. And so all of these things are, are sources of spiritual pride or arrogance. So the first of them in the second half of chapter 6 is things from the east. Now what that means is uh, Israel was attracted to the worship of the, uh, the cultures to the east of them, in particular the, the, uh, the mysticism of Babylonia. Uh, there is something about uh, the, the worship of other gods that keeps uh, attracting uh, Judah and Israel to that. Now Israel was meant to be distinct. It was called to be a holy nation. It wasn't supposed to be at all like the other gods. They were to worship the one true God and they were meant to be a light to the nations. The worship of Yahweh was meant to be uh, so wholesome uh, that it would attract other people to it, but that was not the case. Uh, and so whereas God had warned them that they mustn't go after the gods of the nations, uh, the attraction of the gods of the east uh, proved irresistible. Now, in the same way that one day the nations will come to Zion, as we've already seen in chapter 2, now Jerusalem is going to the nations. They're practising divination, sorcery, just like the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were to the west, so it's almost as though Yahweh's saying you've got, uh, you're tolerating enemies on both sides of you. Uh, but the, the Philistines, this should be a shame because they, they, were, uh, they were the perpetual enemies of, of God's people, Israel and Judah. Uh, and they were famous for their idolatry. And so to be compared to the Philistines should have been shameful for the people of Jerusalem. But we have to confess that there is something seductive about exotic practices from far-flung places. And it exercised an attraction to Judah, as it still does for us today. Um, now, here's the thing. Um, you'll never be tempted to do something you don't want to do. That's the nature of temptation. You can't be tempted to do something you don't want to do. Uh, there is the promise of pleasure. There is the promise of, of something that seems good as you respond to it. And one of those things that was seeming good to the people of Jerusalem, which has a bit of a lure to us as well, 
is exotic things, uh, far-flung places, interesting ideas. Um, those of us old enough to remember the 1960s would remember the Beatles, the, uh, the famous English pop group, and uh, they made a very famous uh, excursion to India to sit at the feet of uh, Maharishi Mahesh, the, um, the, the guru that they chose, a, a, an Indian uh, religious teacher. And uh, he had an influence on the way that they uh, wore their clothes and uh, some of their songs started to influence Indi uh, feature Indian influences. Uh, but they, they, they brought um, that a consciousness of, of Indian religion um, into the forefront of people's thinking in the West. They weren't the only people to do it, but they were probably the most famous that I can remember. Uh, and and you know, in my time, uh, I've seen a, a steady stream of people um, getting interested in, in alternative religion. Um, and it's had an impact on, on Christians as well. As, as Christians start to say, well, look, you know, there, there must be something we can learn from them. Well, uh, th that sorts of things, those sorts of things play themselves out too in the uh, fascination with the occult. Uh, and, and also with, um, with, with horoscopes and, and astrology, uh, with the New Age movement and, uh, and all sorts of practices uh, designed to get you in touch with your inner self, uh, practices which um, some people would say are helping you to get in touch with the divine in you. Now, there is this uh, attraction to this. That's why so many people go to it. Um, but it's not for the people of God. Uh, Jesus says it's a narrow road that leads to life uh, and few find it. Uh, the way of the wide path will lead to destruction, uh, but very often that wide path looks very attractive or it, would, it wouldn't draw many to it. And so we need to confess that this is our world and uh, these temptations are, are no less real to us than they were to God's people of ancient, ancient times. Well, the futility, the second uh, measure of it, it's not just things of the East, the second measure of it is that they've amassed considerable amounts of silver and gold. They are filled with silver there's no end to their treasures. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14 uh, would make us wonder whether they've got these uh, treasures ethically. Um, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 would make us wonder if they're using them ethically. There seems to be a fair measure of oppression indicated there. Back when God was giving instructions about the uh, kinds of things to look for in a king, uh, the king was warned in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, not to acquire much wealth. Now, the problem with wealth... The Bible never condemns it as evil outright, uh, but the Bible does warn us that wealth is seductive because it undermines our trust in God or it can undermine our trust in God. It may not be evil in itself, but the fact is that it's a danger to us if we're not careful. And so Jesus in Matthew 13, the, the, the famous story of the, uh, the weeds and the wheat, um, he talks about how uh, the, the, the weedy soil... Um, uh, the third soil, the weedy soil in Matthew 13, is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So wealth may not be evil, but it's a threat. It's risky. We need to be careful of it. And so God said that uh, Israel's king should not amass much of it. And yet the second uh, item that they're full of is wealth, treasures and silver. Well, number three is horses and chariots. Um, now you might think, what's wrong with horses? Uh, well, the problem with horses is what they represented. And again, when God gave instructions to Israel's king in Deuteronomy 17, uh, he told uh, the people that the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Horses were an index of a nation's military strength. Uh, horses and chariots uh, were, were what uh, the kings of the nations put their trust in to show that they were powerful, to show that they were strong opponents of whoever took them on. 
and to have this uh, interest in acquiring many horses and chariots said that the, that Israel, God's people, had taken its eyes off Yahweh as being the true nature of their, their, their defence. Uh, Yahweh said he would fight their battles for them. All they had to do was remain faithful. But if they amassed uh, great armaments like this, it was saying, we want to be like the nations, we've stopped trusting God. Now, the fourth thing that their land is full of is idols in verse 8. Uh, now, the word idol literally means a no-god. This is a god that doesn't exist, uh, an idol, a no-god. Uh, and, and Isaiah makes the very strong point there that these idols are human creations. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 8, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And so here's the irony. A man makes an idol which means that he is bigger, stronger and cleverer than the instrument that he's working with, but then he worships it, which makes no sense at all. Now notice there that idols are the work of human hands, human fingers. When Israel's God's represented in his creative work, the psalmist David in Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, that's what... Yahweh makes the universe, not some little statue. The folly of idolatry is this, that someone makes something which they worship. Can you imagine Yahweh, the creator, worshipping his creation, worshipping people? How foolish. Idolatry is absurd. It makes no sense at all. But according to God's word and according to the commands that he made to his people, commands which were always for their good, worship belongs to God alone. Uh, he alone is the creator. And so in verse 9, uh, the prophet Isaiah makes a pronouncement. He says, so, that's a, a word which speaks of the consequences of all that's just gone before, so, Man is humbled and each one is brought low. We can't look for security, we can't look for meaning, we can't look for treasure outside of God and his word. God is God and he's strong and he's powerful. He won't be mocked and he will not overlook rebellion endlessly. And so the appropriate penalty for these people is that they be brought low, that they be humbled. Humbling is the appropriate penalty. Uh, G.K. Beale wrote a book, a very helpful one, called We Become What We Worship. It's about the foolishness of idolatry examined all through the Bible. Uh, idolatry is a perpetual uh, snare to God's people. But the thing about idolatry is that we become like what we worship. And idolatry means that we become less human because we were made to worship God. Well, the fifth futility, it's not actually listed in quite the same way, but we, I think it's a, a conclusion that we can safely draw. There's a fifth futility, and it's in verse 10. And here the prophet mocks the people for their response. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendour of his majesty. That's the best they'll be able to do if they persist with their rebellion, just try to hide now, I think this uh, calls to mind some episodes from Israel's history. When Israel struggled with idolatry, when Israel turned its back on, on God, God allowed the nations around about them, famously the Philistines, 
uh, to invade them and to subjugate them. Uh, and so if you were to look in Judges chapter 6 uh, with the story of Gideon, uh, 1 Samuel 13 and 14, you'll find their evidence that when they were invaded, when their enemies um, put them under the, uh, the sandal heel, so to, so to speak, uh, they fled to caves. They lived not in houses but in caves. They hid from their enemies. There's a story in uh, chapter 14 of 1 Samuel where um, Jonathan, Saul, the, the King Saul's son, goes out with, um, with, with an accomplice to try to uh, engage Philistine opponents in, in um, hand-to-hand combat. And uh, when they emerge from their cave, the Philistines taunt them. They say, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So when Isaiah says to, to Jerusalem, enter into the rock, hide in the dust, he's using an image of fear, of trembling, of, uh, of being uh, scared by an opponent too great for you. Jonathan might have broken the mould there, but the Philistines knew what they thought they were looking at, people coming from the caves in fear. There's an old saying, you can run but you can't hide. Isaiah taunts the people of Jerusalem, if you persist with looking to the east, if you persist with futile things to find meaning and, and purpose, if you persist with all that uh, you're using to rebel against God, there will come a day of reckoning and you can try to hide but it won't work. That's an image which is picked up quite terrifyingly in Revelation chapter 6. Now let's confess, friends, that our world is full of futility. Um, futile pursuits, empty pursuits, pointless and uh, Pursuits doomed to failure, they're always around us. John Calvin, the great uh, French reformer, um, famously said this, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols or a factory of idols, stuffed with presumptuous rashness, daring to imagine a God suited to its own capacity, substituting vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. What rank stupidity to think that we could create a God to rival the one who created us. But our idolatry takes different forms. It may not involve the worship of, uh, of objects and, and um, statues and so on. But idolatry takes the shape of seeking security and meaning apart from God. Uh, idolatry takes the shape for us of uh, trying too hard to identify with the culture of which we're a part. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul, the apostle says, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Idolatry has this seductive appeal. Uh, this this uh, tendency to shape us uh, into the into the pattern of the world around us. Idolatry means misplaced priorities. Gordon Dahl wrote a book, Work, Play and Worship in a Leisure-Oriented Society, and he said this, people worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Look at that. People worship their work. They work at their play and they play at their worship. That's his description of life back in 1972. Is it any different? Perhaps it's even worse. But that's idolatry. The apostle says, don't be conformed to the world. He's echoing concerns that Isaiah expressed. So verses 11 to 18, where once Isaiah's virtually said, you know, do as the nations will do, now he says, don't do as the nations are doing. Verse 9, he says, man is humble, the appropriate response of Yahweh to these idolaters, these, these rebels. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. 
Look at the repetition. Look at the artistry as uh, the prophet put, puts these things together. Man is humbled. Each one is brought low in verse 9. It's repeated in verse 11, except in reverse order. The haughty looks of man will be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. But then uh, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. And it's the lofty pride of men that's going to be humbled. There's this interaction, this um, almost a tapestry of, of ideas that are being repeated for added emphasis here. And against all that is lifted up, God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is going to bring all that low. But in opposition to all of that, God is going to act against all that's currently lifted up. But notice this, that he on that day, the day when he comes to judge, the day when he comes to act against all that's opposing him, he will be exalted. He and he alone. And so there's a list now of the things that Yahweh opposes. The Lord of hosts has a day in verse 13 against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan. Um, the, the people of the nations around about them went into sacred groves of trees to worship their gods. Uh, God will judge that. Uh, verse 14, the Lord of hosts has a day against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills. Very often the worship of pagan gods was on high places, mountains and hilltops, uh, where heaven and earth seemed to meet. Uh, that was an attraction to God's people in Jerusalem. He says that will be judged. The Lord of hosts has a day in verse 15 against every high tower and against every fortified wall. In other words, don't trust in your fortifications. Don't think that human defences will be sufficient. If God's against you, no wall will stand. The Lord of hosts has a day in verse 15 against all the ships of Tarshish and against their beautiful craft. Do you remember Tarshish? That's where Jonah went to. Um, symbolically, it was about as far away from Jerusalem as anybody can imagine going. It was out further to the west. Uh, but the people of Tarshish were a trading nation. They had the biggest, strongest boats of anybody around. They travelled a long, long way to bring back lots of goodies. Uh, so they're a symbol of people that trade and become wealthy with all that they've amassed. Uh, Yahweh has a day against that as well. All of these things will be judged. And so verses 17 to 18. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away notice humbled again and brought low Yahweh alone will be exalted on the day that he comes to judge the earth and so in verse 19 uh, again we get this idea just like verse 10 of people entering the caves and the rocks the holes of the ground when Yahweh comes uh, it will be terrifying uh, they'll try to hide from the splendor of his majesty imagine a God so wonderful, so bright, so brilliant, so awe-inspiring that no one can stand in his presence and you think a cave will protect you? When he comes in that splendour, when he comes in that majesty, it's going to be an object of terror for those who've persisted in rebellion. But in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and from the splendour of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Notice the repetition. Uh, these things have to be said. They have to be forced home to people that are hard of hearing. In that day, they'll send their idols to the bats. They'll send them to the moles. Bats live in caves. Uh, moles live in holes. Uh, these places that um, 
the, the prophet has said, um, you know, that's where you're going to go to try to hide from the, the majestic splendour of God when he comes. Uh, what will happen on that day, those idols that they've put their hope in will prove as useful to them uh, then as they would to normal dwellers of holes and, and caves, bats and moles. Idols are useless. So in verse 22, Isaiah concludes this little section. And he pleads with Jerusalem to listen, to learn and to turn. The moral of the story, he says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So he's just pointed out that Jerusalem deserves to be judged and he says the nations will be judged as well. The nations that currently terrify them and entice them will be judged. So he says, why copy them? Why fear them? When he says that these are just people in, in whose nostrils is breath, these are people who depend uh, for, on breath for life as well. They're just flesh and blood. They're just human beings. He says, why put confidence in someone as dependent as you are? Because all life depends on God. In effect, he's saying, why be judged like the nations? Return to Yahweh and live. You see, Yahweh will judge all that's futile. Human pride is fatal. Uh, Self-sufficiency in culture, wealth, prosperity, um, national security, idolatry, all of these things invite God's anger. There will come a day when Yahweh alone will be exalted, lifted high. And so this idea of threat and promise of judgment and salvation, we've seen it oscillating um, through the early chapters of Isaiah already. We've seen that the day of the Lord is a terrifying prospect. It's something that uh, all of the prophets speak about. It's something that's picked up in the New Testament as well. There is a coming day when God will deal in judgment with all that has been uh, done in rebellion to him, with all who persist in rebellion against him. It's the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. But it's a day not only of threat, but also of promise. You see, in chapter 2, uh, we're told that it will be fearful. But in chapter 4, we're told that the day of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. In chapter 2, we're told that uh, it'll be futile hiding from Yahweh on that day. But for those who have made him their refuge, for those who have come to him in repentance and faith uh, and pleaded for salvation, they'll find that Yahweh is a secure refuge. So the choice is ours. When Yahweh comes, and he will, uh, he'll come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns to the earth, we'll find that uh, he'll either come as our judge or our saviour. The day of the Lord will be a day of terror or a day of wonder, a day of beauty, a day of, uh, of, of peace. Uh, as I think about these things, I'm reminded of, um, of something that made quite an impression on me as a younger man. I started my teaching career uh, in uh, the, the western Victorian town of Nil, and I began playing cricket for Japarrett and going to church in Japarrett, which is 40 kilometres away, and we had friends out there who invited us. So I'd drive from Nil to Japarrett to, uh, to play cricket and go to church and visit our friends. And along the way, uh, there was a farm where the farmer, a very devout man, had put up a sign uh, that faced the driver as they came from Nil to Japarrett, and then there was the flip side of the sign that you'd see on the way back. On one side of the sign, it looked like this. At the top, it said, Fellow Traveller. Down below, God is love. And in between, he had John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that was what I read as I drove to Japarrett. But on the way back home, I saw the other side of the sign. He is also a consuming fire. 
Now is the day of salvation for you which? Neither side of the sign is truer than the other. They're both true and they must both be seen together. The day of the Lord will be a day of threat and terror and it will be a day of promise and salvation. It depends on everyone's reaction. Fellow traveller, God is love. He's also a consuming fire for you which reject futile self-sufficiency depend on God alone find refuge in Jesus the one who died for your sins before it's too late let's pray heavenly father thank you again for these powerful words from your servant Isaiah words which uh, point us to our need of a saviour one who would uh, come and Put us right with you. We know that in our own efforts we'll only work ourselves up to deserving your, your wrath, your anger, your judgment. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus came and lived among us, became one with us, so that we could be put right with you through his sacrifice of his own life on the cross. Please help us to quit from idolatry and anything which gets in the way of our worship which belongs to you alone. We know that you alone are the one who should be exalted and on that day you will be revealed as being the only one worthy of worship. So please help us to do now what will be entirely appropriate then, to offer you all that we are, all that we have uh, in, in gratitude and in humble dependence because of all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.